But I think the colleges and universities that can find the most creative and innovative ways to integrate technology and utilize all of these modalities effectively to create engaging, meaningful learning experiences for their students are the ones that are going to thrive. Welcome back to Riding the Big Wheel. I'm Michelle Seeger, your host, and in today's episode, we're continuing our conversation with Pam Tipton. Pam leads the Executive Custom Development Programs at Emory University. In our podcast, we talk about everything from education, future of education, AI, and work. If you didn't catch part one of this episode, please be sure to listen to that one and then join us here. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy. So now let's shift over and talk about AI and oh generative boy. AI. We're going to have fun Hot right now. Topic. We've had some heavy conversation today, <laughs> Pam. I'm like, whew, I'm sweating over here. Um, work, education, how people think. I want to ask you about just, you know, AI in, uh, in the university, AI and work, like you get mm-hmm. to look behind the curtain. How is or is it not being leveraged today? Mm. And just first thing, just, you know, uh, some of the great benefits you see and yeah. then maybe some concerns. Just yeah. share with us a bit of your thinking and what you're observing out there. Yeah. So I think um, generally the benefits are that AI can help us be so much more productive. I was reading a blog about um, an independent um, graphic designer. And he was talking about how he has become literally three times more productive now by using AI. He's using AI tools I had actually not even heard of. He said, you know, a proposal that I might, you know, might take me a couple of days to put together, I can actually do in a couple of hours now. So instead of being able to produce one to two proposals a week, I can clearly do three to four. Um, Producing work product. I was creating a presentation for a client and I decided to try out this new AI tool. So it took me a while to come up to speed on this new AI tool. But when I did so, my focus was then on honing it and shaping it to what I knew the client was looking for. Um, So it can help us be more productive. But the human element is not going to go away. I think there's, you know, there's articles out there like, is AI coming for my job and that kind of <laughs> thing, right? That goes back to why education is so important and building those critical thinking and problem-solving skills. So one of our vendor partners at Emory was telling me that they are using AI to create the initial drafts of all of their e- outreach emails. Mm. They are a company that does uh, leadership behavioral assessments. And so they know the profile of the people that they're talking to, and they can put that information into the AI tool that they're using to create an email that's going to resonate with that individual. And then that email is reviewed by a person and adapted so that it is more human. Um, So it's a coaching moment for the employees and an opportunity for them to use their own critical thinking, but they're being more productive. They're not having to start from a white 
piece of paper, so to speak, mm-hmm. or a blank screen uh, to create. So I think the benefits are huge and enormous and opens up a world of possibilities. And, you know, I think you had shared when we were preparing for this conversation that, you know, we used to just go Google something, right? <laughs> yes. Now we can just go to ChatGPT or some other form of AI to, to learn about things. So it opens up a world of possibilities. So on the downside, especially coming from an educational perspective, um, what about cheating, right? Well, there's the, I'll use air quotes, the anti-ChatGPT, <laughs> if you will. So there are several tools out there that are now well-regarded that can detect uh, on a probability scale that it was developed by AI. Hmm. So there is still the critical importance of putting the human touch on it. I think the other thing that is a huge concern is when it is used for bad, hmm. for evil, for hmm. spreading false information, for, um, you know, there was uh, um, included in one of the articles I read over the last couple of weeks was how AI was being used in social media to push videos that had vile content mm-hmm. in it. So, you know, those are some of the things. And I think there's, a, the, you know, there's obviously a huge debate about governance around AI. And I think, you know, I came from, <laughs> I spent the lion's share of my corporate career in a highly regulated telecommunications industry. And I think that there is a tipping point in regulation. Regulation can be good, but it should be viewed as guardrails so that you have the leeway within that to operate. You get too tight. It's kind of like, you know, stress. You hold it in too long, it's going to pop out Mm. somewhere, right? So you get too tight on regulation and something bad's going to happen. It's kind of like what we saw with financial crisis, right? Right. Same thing with AI. So it's a challenge and it's a big challenge. But those are some of the concerns. Now, what I'm super proud of are some of the things going on at Emory. So Emory has embraced AI. It is here to stay. So we now have a center of AI in the humanities. And we are teaching our students how to leverage AI for their research, for creativity, uh, for learning, but also how to use it responsibly. And we're you know, equipping them in our programs that are around, you know, our master's in business analytics, master's of analytical finance. Um, We're equipping our students how to integrate AI in their future work. So the center lives at what we call Big Emory. Uh (laughs) And we have partnerships across all the schools to figure out, bring all the best minds together and to help our student population um, really know how to leverage the best of the technologies to further their careers once they leave the academic world. I absolutely love um, that they're teaching young people how to leverage and use it. And I'm guessing, based on what you're saying, also what some of the downsides Mm -hmm. can be. Absolutely. Um, I heard, so I listened to a podcast called Your Undivided Attention and Tristan Harris is the the host of it. And he was also one of the minds behind the social dilemma. And he had a guest on recently who was talking about uh, what they called, I never really heard of this term before, social loafing, but social loafing in AI, which is basically the idea that if I can ask AI, I just won't do it. Mm. You know, I can just sit back on the couch, right? I can socially loaf 
why it does the work. And so the concern was long-term, a couple things. One, that individuals, I mean, I even think about this uh, as simple as like Siri, not AI, generally. Oh, yeah. Right, where you'll say, who was in that movie? What was that movie? And then you'll say, Siri, who was the star of the movie, you know, that was about so-and-so or whatever? And it gives you the answer. So they're saying that there's a reliance on this AI um, to give answers and that it may not help, it may not spur and people will become duller than critically thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, being less creative, for example. You've heard about the art AI stuff that's out there that's creating artwork. Oh, yeah, Dolly right? is On one of them. Of yeah. Dolly, right. So what do you have to say about that, and how would uh, a university like Emory address those types of concerns? I think that's a really valid concern and, and interesting question. Um, you know, I'm not an anthropologist or sociologist, <laughs> but what I would offer is I think if you— just look at a general population. There's always going to be those loafers. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be those who just aren't curious and aren't willing to put in the work. And then you're going to have those who are super high achievers, and then you've got all those in between, right? So I guess I would just say my hope for humanity is that we will retain some semblance of balance, um, that even if someone becomes a social loafer, that at some point they find themselves bored and something spurs their curiosity to kick them back into gear, so to speak. You know, um, I think about my time I took a sabbatical and I wasn't a social loafer. I was engaged, but there was a time when suddenly I realized I need that intellectual stimulation Mm -hmm. of being a part of the workforce. Um, But you know, I'm just going to say my hope for humanity is that there remains some kind of balance. I don't believe AI is going to take over the world. I don't believe it's going to take all our jobs. I do believe that we will still need and rely upon the human factor to, to build the models, to evaluate the models, to help us be mindful of things like where bias might be creeping in to those AI-produced things, whatever those things are, whether it's code or written materials. Um, and my hope for this generation that's in school now is that they don't sit back and rely too much. And I mm-hmm. think that the as the ante gets upped on being able to detect the AI-generated content, uh, people will be held accountable. And that may or may not guilt them into changing their behavior. I guess we'll have to see. (laughs) So I think you're a bit of an optimist like I am. So I look at it like, okay, the social loafer who probably can't even take, you know, um, support themselves. Maybe AI will help them at least get there, right? Maybe. And your high achiever will stay your high achiever. So you and I, I think, are a little more optimistic (laughs) on that front. All right, so I want to talk about... Current work environment, yeah. big topic still. You know, are we hybrid? Are we remote? Are yeah. we in office? Now, me and my work, and so I'm interested in you and your work, um, we're starting to hear some frustration at the CHRO level where companies didn't take a strong position on coming in the office, even at a hybrid way. So now, because it was a little open and we'd like you to come in two days a week or three days, whatever that looks like, 
Suddenly, I, I'm going to paint a couple of pictures for you. There is a mandate. You're in five days or you're fired after the yeah. third event, right? Because they're sick of it, if you will. Right? So CHRs are always going, oh, my God. Now, I've always said from the beginning that companies just have to be clear on what they want and why. And why. The why and is why. so important. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, like, what you see mm-hmm. – what you think, you know, what, what's happening right now because you're in and out of places. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me that that's one of the biggest struggles that companies are having. And, you know, around they believe, right, There's what we're hearing about is productivity. We're hearing um, that they believe there's some social loafing going around on, um, that people aren't quite in check of that, and development, just mm-hmm. overall development of their own, you know, mm-hmm. career and critical thinking. But I'd love to hear what you're seeing out mm-hmm. there and what you what you believe. Yeah, let's come back to the development. So don't let okay. me forget. All right, because <laughs> that's a really important one. I tend to ask too many questions, questions all at one once. Question. That's okay. Let's just say I'm curious. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, you know, um, again, I think it's a interesting study to see how different companies are taking different points of view. Um, Again, you're going to have employees who have differing needs and differing preferences. I'm hearing about people who only want to work from home 100% of the time, and there are some who actually really love and thrive going into the office. And then there's people in the middle. What is surprising to me is when companies make a policy across the board without the why. Mm. So I'll use, for example, my husband's company, large global telecommunications company. And they originally had said people can work from everywhere. We are a telecom company. We enable teleworking. People sold their homes move to more desirable locations, um, so forth and so on. 18 months later, this is all post-pandemic, they changed their mind. You have to be in one of five geographic locations or you're going to be let go. And not only do you have to be in one of five geographic locations, you have to be in the office three days a week. So my husband used to be a full-time teleworker 100% of the people he works with reside somewhere other than the Atlanta metro area. And so for him to go into the office means that he has to pack up his equipment, haul it into the office. It's usually a 45-minute to an hour drive. There's the time involved in packing up his things. And then he gets to the office and has to set himself up. So he's lost an hour to an hour and a half of productivity on the way into the office And then he loses another hour plus leaving the office. Whereas if he were working from home, he would be starting work an hour earlier because he's not going to, he's not going to get up and use his own personal time to get to the office to start work at the same time he would have been working at home. And likewise, he's not going to work as long. Well, I take that back. He does end up working longer hours when he comes (laughs) home and keeps working. But all that to say, he's getting on the exact same phone calls with people that are out West and in Texas and in the Northeast. And in India, there is absolutely no one for him to collaborate with in the office. 
And he said, it's very isolating and very lonely. He said, I feel more connected to the people I'm working with in all of our teleconferences and video conferences when I'm sitting in my familiar environment at home and I've got all of my screens because I can't even have all of my screens and stuff. Now, take another example where you have work that needs and thrives on that that in-person collaboration, some of the work I get to do. Yes, we can collaborate using technological tools. You can use a whiteboard on a Zoom call, Teams call, whatever, um, and do some of that collaboration. But to me, it doesn't replace the sitting around a table with a big whiteboard when we're ideating around, here's what we're hearing from a client about what their needs are, and here are some of the possible ways that our faculty expertise can come to bear. And here are some of the fun experiential learning activities. And we're jotting all these things down and creating kind of a mind map looking thing on a whiteboard. And that is less engaging and inspiring for me and, and, and my boss and some others on our team when we can't be in person to do that. So it goes back to the, what are the needs of the work? And how is that work best accomplished? Uh, to me, it's really about that. And it's less about making some hard and fast rule. Um, I do believe relationships are super important. So that then segues into development. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've still got an ongoing connection with PathBuilders. I, I had the privilege of working at PathBuilders for several years right after my sabbatical. Um, there's a lot of research that they have done about how individual and team development has really taken a hit, especially post-pandemic, when more companies are hybrid or are fully virtual. It takes more effort to build relationships virtually. It doesn't mean it can't be done, but it's about being more purposeful about it. You aren't passing people in the hallway, literally over the cup of coffee or at the water cooler, as we like to say, Um, you aren't learning about some of the initiatives that are going on that you might not have known about if you're not able to just pass people and how, hey, what are you working on? Those casual conversations aren't happening like they used to when you're in a more hybrid or virtual environment. So when it comes to development, it really is on the individual to be thinking critically about what am I going to need to be doing to develop myself not only to expand in my current role, but for what's next for me, to be guiding, taking ownership of guiding my own career, and then being purposeful about setting up those conversations with both your manager, your leader, but in other leaders in the business, because others need to know about what you're interested in and what your passions are and what your experiences might bring value to other things going on in the company. But likewise, when you're a leader in the business, really being thoughtful about making sure you are touching base with your team on a very regular basis Mm. because those human connections are invaluable. They build trust. They build empathy. They build understanding. And when people feel heard and listened to and understood, they're more engaged. It's a natural human element. And so it, does it just I think the bottom line is it requires more effort on the leader's part and the individual's part um, and you know there's no magic wand but there are so many more options now kind of going back to what's changing in education 
There's so much more available. There's so much more micro learning out there. There's so many ways to consume information. And it doesn't, mm. doesn't necessarily mean a huge investment of time, but it, it takes purpose and thought. It does. So we, um, we're a hybrid in the office. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, some days, I mean, I'm sure people are going to hear this, but at the end of the day, we're in, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm exhausted because I have spent a lot of time with the team who yeah. maybe, you know, on Mondays or one of the days we come in after being home for a few days. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a big day. And everybody wants time. Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> and you know you have to give that time. Right. But I'm like, oh, my God, I'm exhausted. When, when are they all not here? <laughs> when do I get my next break? Because yeah. I'm in every day. But, I mean, I don't. I, I collaborate with uh, another partner here mm-hmm. at Sales Globe. And I'm, you know, I'm totally great with that. But we do give people that bounce. We're in Atlanta. You know, we do yeah. find that we want them to whiteboard, collaborate, meet together. Right. Client meetings that we have where the client could be on Zoom, right? When the team dyna- when the team is there and they're hearing concerns of clients, the social the, the cues that you get in person yes. are a little Very bit different. different than right. Very different. The cues that you get over Zoom. And so we've we've had to go through some of that evolution ourselves of getting of getting used to that again. So I want to switch now and talk a little bit about the future. Mm-hmm. And we'll start with the future of education, because that seems fun. Um, over the next five years and beyond, like, what do you think is going to happen to, you know, the evolution of, so we've got AI, we've got this hybrid, you know, uh, learning, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people are, you know, in mm-hmm. or, or out, how that works. Uh, but you talked about, you know, this amazing AI center at, um, at Emory for learning. So what do you think the future is going to look like for education? You know, I think um, it's going to be ever evolving for Uh one. Yeah. I think it is going to be continually enabled by technology. Um, You know, you think about the preferences of learners. We talked about a little earlier, wanting it to be more customized to them and their interests. Well, technology is one of the ways that can be enabled. Um, I think that having the combination of online, fully asynchronous, online synchronous, in person, really meets people where they are because every person has unique learning styles. And not all of us learn in the same way. You know, I'm a visual learner, and but I also need to hear the, the audible, so to speak, and the in-person um, is meaningful for me because I'm a relationship builder. But that's not the case for everybody. So I think techno- I think that education will continue to evolve. Do I believe that the in-person classroom is going to go away? I personally don't think so. But I think the colleges and universities that can find the most creative and innovative ways to integrate technology and utilize all of these modalities effectively to create engaging, meaningful learning experiences for their students are the ones that are going to thrive. Kind of back to the question you asked kind of really early on in our conversation about why do I really need an education because the time I graduate, it's going to be irrelevant. It's about shifting the focus to enabling those critical thinkers. 
enabling globally minded problem solvers. Um, I get to see this in the work that we do with our corporate clients. Those that are North American based, it's very hard to get outside of that North American mindset. And so really, when I talk about creating globally minded problem solvers, having that agility to be able to adapt what we're thinking about, how is that really going to play in, in, in an Asian country and not just in an Asian country, but specifically, you know, in China versus Japan versus India versus what, you know, whatever you will need to adapt, whether you're a product or a services oriented company. So being globally minded, and I think that's going to just increase. We're such a global commerce world now. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that all businesses or even business people are globally minded. So, you know, I think that that's going to raise an importance and continue to be important, and it's going to continue to be important to help kind of instill that continuous learning mindset, instill that curiosity, um, and instill resilience because you think about the pace of change and it is going to continue to accelerate thanks to technology. So the way in which education can take part in helping to build resilience in its students, um, I think is going to be really important. I think education has had to already increase the amount of attention and care it's given to mental health. I don't think that is just a product of the pandemic. I think that there has been increasing pressure on students. Um, and so I think all of that falls under that kind of resiliency that will be important for colleges and universities to think about um, as they serve their population of students as we move into the future. Boy, you just opened up a whole nother podcast for us when you talked about mental health. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the future work. And uh, Emory Business Magazine, I love that magazine, by the way. It always has interesting things in it. It does. They it really, they talked about the workers of the future. Mm-hmm. So culturally, you know, how might they be changing or not? Um, what, what that kind of looks like. The article I thought was pretty fantastic and touched on some of the things that we've discussed, Mm -hmm. which is how the human element and how we interact with each other is going to become even more important. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you see the future of work and the future worker. What what do they look like? Yeah. Well, again, I really think, not to oversimplify, but I think it's going to boil down to the future worker being someone who is super curious and is constantly learning and owning their own upskilling, if you will, Mm. because technology is changing fast. We need to stay up. You know, is technology coming for our jobs? Well, for some of the jobs, but that's going to leave, that's going to open up new possibilities. You know, as we were talking about earlier, the human component. Yeah. Even with AI and technology, um, Bringing it, we are still humans. And so we need to connect on that human level. So the work products we're producing will need to have that human perspective or they're not going to resonate. 
the graphics that are created need to have that human aspect because again, you know, the blogger I was talking about earlier, the graphics designer, you know, the, the AI produced something that was okay, but because he had had a conversation with his client, he knew the spirit that his Mm. client was looking for. And he said, despite three to five attempts at putting in or more attempts of putting all of that into his AI machine, if you will, the, the AI application he was using, it still didn't get there. Mm. So the worker of the future is still going to need to have the digital fluency, the, the learning mindset to continually adapting to what's coming new, the resiliency to make those changes but also the ability to connect on the human level to make it relevant. You know, I think you could relate. You've certainly gotten emails that are solicitation or marketing mm-hmm. emails, and you can tell that email was not adapted to you. Oh, yeah, you can. You can, <laughs> right? And so what did you do? Delete. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 hate, I feel like a broken record in some ways going back to some of those same qualities, but I just mm-hmm. think the future of work is going to be continually more technologically enabled. But there is... You know, way back in my, you know, earlier days in my career, I had a senior leader that helped me think about how you assign work. You assign work, and he said, I'm not being demeaning. I'm trying to help you think from an economic perspective. Assign work to the lowest pay grade that is qualified and is appropriate for that pay grade to do, which is why, Pam, as a director... I do not want you standing in front of the copy machine making copies. It's okay to go run a copy, but if you've got a lot of production work to do, that is costing me mm. X amount per hour versus the person we hired to do that work is costing Y per hour. Likewise with technology. What are the things that are appropriate for technology to do? What is the part that's appropriate for the human to do? And then how do I upskill myself to make sure I'm the best at doing those things where at the intersection of the technology and the human part? Boy, that's extremely well said and a lot for people to think about, a lot for leaders to think about, a lot for me to think about, you know, as I think about my own future work and mm-hmm. that of, of my team. So now I'm going to ask you a couple personal questions. <laughs> you know, so this is called riding the big wheel after all. And I want to ask you about a big wheel moment in your life. (laughs) Well, I would have to say it's the catalyst that set me on the path that I'm on today, though it happened, gosh, um, 20 years ago. Mm. Um, And it was, you know, it's been a journey. So the big wheel moment was I was in a spiritual gifts class at, uh, at my former church, and it revealed to me um, around, you know, empathetic leadership, that wasn't the actual word, um, was a, a component of my spiritual gifts. And so that was an aha moment for me in that I had the wonderful opportunity during my career in telecom to have a number of different roles. But in each of those roles, the things that resonated, that fed my soul, 
so to speak, or made my heart sing, were the opportunities I had to coach and develop others. Oh, interesting. Or to teach them things that might help them become kind of better versions of themselves. I mean, I hate to use that cliche, but it's a good way to say it. And so during that spiritual gifts class, it was like this aha moment of, oh, that's why all these things do make my heart sing. And so it was a combination of that Plus, we were in a period of um, the possibility of regulatory relief. And as I mentioned earlier, telecom was a highly regulated industry. Um, And so we were literally having daily meetings with the president of our wholesale division. And he was asking really thoughtful questions, and in some cases, questions that I didn't know how to think about. So one day he said, so if we do this and charge that, what might that do for our stock price? Mm. And I was stumped. I didn't even know how to start to think about that at that stage in my career. And I'd already had this seed planted about something in this area of leadership development was my future. And so that started me on the path to get my MBA. The president of my division actually wrote one of my recommendation letters, um, and I wanted to broaden my perspective so that I understood more discreetly how very senior leaders think about the business so that I could then understand how to help solve some of those challenges, right, of them, for them and their teams. So that landed me at Goizueta, and I'm sitting in class one day. I'm still working at this large telecom company who had paid for my MBA, mm. When the light bulb went off, I was in a leadership and organizational development class and doing a cultural fit assessment, and I realized I am not thriving and going to thrive in this culture. We had just been acquired, and um, the culture was changing, and I went back to the office on Monday. I was in the executive MBA program at Goizueta, and I told my boss, I think I need to leave. And he said, shut the door. And, you know, we had a wonderful conversation. And I explained what had gone on in the classroom. And he essentially said, if you don't have a financial planner, now's the time. Mm. You are part of the redesign of this organization. You know, I've already declared I'm leaving. There's not going to be a better time to take an early retirement financial package Mm -hmm. and go. And so I essentially designed myself out of a job and decided to take a sabbatical. Because I was exhausted. I had had a very demanding job at the time. I had been a corporate policy witness in front of the wow the state public service commissions, in front of the Federal Communications Commission, in front of the U.S. District Court. And it was a, I actually loved it <laughs> because I viewed that role not as an adversarial role, but as a teaching role. Mm. I was there to help them understand our perspective. So, but it still was stressful, right? So I took a sabbatical, and I sought the advice of a, a mentor friend of mine um, who had taken a, a, a sabbatical herself when she was mid-career. And I plugged into the community in a, in, with one particular organization, Dress for Success Atlanta, um, which is what then led to me ultimately serving on the board and then chairing the board. Uh, and I plugged into my church in a more meaningful way. But there came a time when 
I intellectually needed that stimulation of work again, and my body just knew it. And so I utilized a series of informational interviews because I didn't yet know the specific path I wanted to take. But I knew that this was a guided path. I knew from, you know, starting with that spiritual gifts class and and my own prayerful um, seeking, that this was a path, a, a general path to be on. And so ultimately, um, you know, it's one of those God moments, I think, that just unfolded for me. I had taken the, the time to be thoughtful and searched through a, a ton of different job postings. I searched on leadership development, executive development, coaching, um, organizational behavior, you know, just to find words and phrases that resonated with me. So I created this kind of ideal job description that included collaboration and um, think coaching and mentoring, things like that. So anyway, I um, ultimately ended up at Path Builders and, and worked with them for several years, um, developing leadership and executive development programs and structured mentoring programs for high potential women. Wow. And so, again, it was just building on that, um, you know, foundation I got at Agnes Scott, so to speak. But it was one of the faculty members at Goizueta that knew about the role that I'm in today and told the team there, you need to reach out to Pam. She'd be ideal for this role. And I feel so fortunate and blessed because that faculty member, Rick Gilkey, is one of the reasons I chose to go to Goizueta because I wanted to have a very strong underpinning of organizational understanding and leadership behavior. And Rick and um, his colleague, Peter Topping, brought that perspective, very highly regarded faculty members. And so I've been in my role at Goizueta now for uh, just over 11 years, and I find myself continually learning, continually challenged, and continually excited by the possibilities that come from Again, getting that peek behind the curtain of what's going yeah. on inside of organizations without having to be enmeshed in all of that. I got to live those political challenges and how you navigate those challenges, and I did that for 20-plus years. Um, but to be able to kind of pull back the curtain a bit and then feel that sense of excitement when you realize we can help. We can help develop leaders to become better versions of themselves. We can help organizations become better versions of themselves. Um, we help organizations reshape their culture to better serve their customers and clients. And I've gotten to watch that happen. And it's incredibly rewarding. I'm sure you get to see the same thing in the work that you do. Yeah. And it probably yeah. is what gets you out of bed every morning. It's very rewarding. Yep. Yep. So you said a couple of things that are interesting that I want our listener to to really think about. So you went through a journey. So you were listening to yourself, mm -hmm. right? You followed that. You obviously remained connected in your community and with others, right? Because right. this is what led you to have these relationships. And something else that you did that um, I also did similarly when I was making a decision that ultimately led me to where I am today and it was, you know, I had, um, I started in consulting. I owned retail stores. I got out of that business. I did, uh, worked for U.S. Bank. 
and did innovation, kind of like consulting for a corporation, innovation for small businesses because I was in retail. And I was really wanting to make a career change. And I did the same thing. I started printing off. LinkedIn was available already, which is great. Different job descriptions and things that I was interested in. And I pieced it together and I said, huh, so girlfriend over here doesn't really want to climb the corporate ladder. She wants to own her own business again, right? She's an entrepreneur at heart, but I love helping businesses solve problems, get to that next step, right? But I want to do it, you know, through my own thing. And that led me right here where we do consulting Mm -hmm. across Fortune 1000 companies on sales effectiveness, right? But it took, it was a journey and it took some time, but I gave myself that. So I'm encouraging people that are thinking, you know, a lot of times, Pam, you're 20, 25 years at a company, you're like, I can't really leave. I've got all this vested in here and, you know, but do it. Look at the joy that you have. Mm -hmm. You know, I I like to say we've got, at least as far as we know, one shot on this earth, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we should make sure it's a good journey. Oh, absolutely. And I think, too, um, You know, one of the things that I didn't know earlier in my career Mm -hmm. and I know now is everybody's motivated by different things. Yeah. Take the time to think about what really motivates you. Is it the meaningful work? Is it the, you know, the career progression in terms of title and salary? Is it the flexibility and the work-life balance? You know, people are motivated by different things and that can change over the course of your life. But for me, Uncovering that meaningful work was a really high value for right. me. You know, I ch- I made a decision that I would take what some would call a step backwards, so to speak, because I was, you know, mid-level executive at a very large company with a very nice salary yeah. and benefit package, right? Um, and I was joking with a friend recently. Uh, actually, the the father of my very best friend from college. I am so fortunate. Um, to have her parents as dear friends and kind of surrogate parents because I've lost both of mine. And I said, well, you know, I do work at a university, and so I'm not really going to get rich, but I'm rich in experience. And so find, taking the time to do that, people always ask, how in the world do you have the courage to do that? And I said, yeah. well, it's about really getting at what brings you joy and finding, you know, people throw around that your purpose in life thing. I distill it to what brings you joy. And are there ways to find the intersection of the things that bring you joy and the work that you do each day? Yep. It can be a grind or it can be a joy. Um, I think that's extremely well said. Yep. So now I want to just ask you to share with everyone a little bit about you, you like me are a reader. Mm-hmm. So what some of your favorite books might be. I was sharing with you earlier that I prefer reading to movies. I just do. So, and I love turning pages. I don't like digital. I like a book oh, in my, my hand. Oh my gosh, I so love a book right? in my hand. I don't know what that is, but I do too. Yeah, I do too. So tell me, share with us a little bit what you enjoy <laughs> oh reading gosh. or have enjoyed reading <laughs> in the past. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I've read any number of business books. And I will say that they all, all the titles and stuff get all mixed up after a while in my head. But I <laughs> take little, both. <laughs> you know, I take little bits from each of those. So I don't have a favorite business book, if you will, that I would rely upon. There are a number out there that are great. My pleasure reading, I have found, 
has been more in historical fiction because you get that sense of imagination, you know, from reading the story, yet you're also getting some historical context. I might not have picked up a book on the Civil War or on World War II or World War I, but the historical fiction for me is really fun because I get to learn a little bit about the history and what was going on and what the lived experiences might be like, Mm -hmm. but yet it's a fictional work. And so one of the ones that just rises up for me is this book called Resistance Women. And it's the women who are really helping the Jews escape during Hitler's terrible march, so to speak. Um, And the stories of how they did that in a very creative and subversive way, so to speak. Um, I also loved All the Light You Cannot See. Um, That's now turned into, you know, a movie, which I was really glad to see. And what I, what I realized when I was thinking about the books that resonate with me, it's really about, again, learning that historical context, but it's, then it's about the humanity inside of the way they're telling the story because in cases of the ones I love, it's how people are risking their own lives to care for other human beings. Um, another book, the, a little heavier topic, if you will, but really important to me. Um, I lost my younger brother way too young. Um, several years ago, and I had no understanding about grief until that happened. He and I were buddies growing up. We did almost everything together. We spent all of our summers together all through college. We were at the lake every day water skiing, and he was the one I preferred to drive the boat when I was skiing because he was really particular about that. And, you know, we were just of course, we got in a lot of trouble, too. <laughs> we were good <laughs> troublemakers. Um, and I adored him. And when he died, um, I I got lost for about 18 months. I lost my short-term memory. Um, it made it very, it was very hard. And I didn't understand the waves of grief. So there's a book called The Wilderness of Grief by Ellen Wolfelt. And um, when I finally got the courage to admit that I needed some help. A therapist recommended that for me. It's a small little book, a very easy read. I literally had thought I was going crazy. I did. I didn't understand why my memory was gone and why I was having trouble with things that had come natural to me before and why I think I probably had a bit of depression, but it just was truly lifted a veil and gave me permission, if you will, to grieve in my own way, that it's like walking through the wilderness and you might get lost and then you might be found and then you might get lost again and you might get found again and eventually you find your way out. Um, So that is a book that is very meaningful to me and I've given to some people that I care deeply about who've lost someone and are struggling with that grief. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't say my favorite guilty pleasure, I would say, is any of Jan Karen's The Mitford series. <laughs> <laughs> They're just fun, yeah. They're just fun and yeah. lighthearted, and the characters yeah. kind of come alive for you. And <laughs> yes, you, they you do. You get to know, like, you actually know the little town of Mitford and <laughs> where the store is and where the diner is and, you know, where the rectory. Anyway, I just, I love those books. I have reread the entire series again. How fun, And yeah. um, we'll pick up one from time to time. If, you know, I can just pick up one. I remember, oh, yeah, I don't remember with this book, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I, I'd be remiss if I'm a huge Jane Karen fan, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention those. Well, thank you so much for sharing your personal story, 
professional story sharing time with us here today. It was really fun. I really appreciate you giving the time. I know how busy you are, um, and I do hope that you'll come back. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. It has been super fun, and <laughs> gosh, we kind of meandered into some you know, areas that I just, quite frankly, hadn't thought deeply about yeah. until, or didn't think I thought deeply about until today's conversation. So thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's Michelle. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy our podcast and know someone who you believe would make a great guest, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and let's talk. I'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, may it inspire you in your own personal and professional journey of life.